segment of the F Word this year, we look at 2015 and look forward with activist Medea Benjamin. And why is the race for the U.S. presidency a scary circus with scary clowns? All that and more coming up next. Welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for December 17, 2015, on 89.3 WPFW, Pacifica's listener-powered station for jazz and justice in the nation's capital, on the ground, and our website, onthegroundshow.org, are devoted to coverage of social justice activism on the streets and in the suites of power. I'm Esther Averam. I'm here with our last show for the year, and so we're going to look back and then look forward with activist Medea Benjamin later in the show. And our last show of the year also coincides with the third week of the month when we do our special segment, The F Word, which explores fascism and pre-fascism today. So you know the corporate media is trying to catch up with our show with all this talk lately. Uh, good luck with that, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. So as always, we have a lot for you in this less than an hour, starting with our headlines. A judge in Baltimore declared a mistrial yesterday in the trial of Baltimore police officer William G. Porter, who was charged on four separate counts related to the death of 25-year-old Freddie Gray. The jury deliberated the case for three days before coming to the conclusion that they were deadlocked and would not be able to reach a unanimous verdict. Legal experts said that the trial was complicated by the fact that while the prosecution and defense agreed that Mr. Gray suffered a debilitating injury inside the police transport van, there is no recording showing what happened. And the fact that six officers have been charged and are being tried separately means that not all the evidence is being presented at the same time or coming out at once. Some trial observers have also expressed concern that the prosecution's emphasis on what happened to Freddie Gray inside the van has obscured the fact that Freddie Gray was clearly severely injured before he was put into the van. The mistrial means that Porter's trial is now over, but prosecutors have the right to try the case again. The attorney for Freddie Gray's family, Billy Murphy, spoke to reporters yesterday. Hung juries are not unusual. Approximately 5% of all the criminal cases that are tried in the country result in hung juries. Uh, most of them are reprosecuted, uh, and uh, in a high number of uh, in a high percentage of those cases, there is a conviction. And so this hung jury does not mean it's the end of Officer Porter's case. Now, I understand that the judge has ordered uh, the parties to appear before the administrative judge and that uh, the state will be seeking a new trial uh, on behalf of Mr. Porter. So this saga is not over. And personally, I've had the same experience of having a jury come back home and sometimes uh, the second trial results in a conviction and sometimes it results in an acquittal. So no one should be upset about it. 
In other Black Lives Matter news, students at the Chicago Urban Prep Charter School chanted 16 shots during a visit yesterday by Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And in Ferguson, the city has reached a tentative agreement with the Department of Justice that will allow them to avoid a civil rights lawsuit over a decades-long pattern of abusive, predatory, and discriminatory policing. FBI Director James Comey said yesterday that contrary to a New York Times report, the suspects in the San Bernardino attacks did not pledge allegiance to ISIS in public posts on Facebook. He said the couple made private direct messages to each other embracing jihad and martyrdom and that these private messages were exchanged in 2013 before they were engaged, married, and lived together in the United States and before the rise of ISIS. Comey's comments also contradict national coverage of the San Bernardino attacks, which has described the attacks as being directed by ISIS, and they contradict statements made on the presidential campaign about the attacks. And in more information, contradicting coverage of the San Bernardino tragedy, author and advocate El-Hajj Mari Salakan told WRFG in Atlanta that there are many unanswered questions in the attacks, including reports from at least two eyewitnesses of three white-complexioned male assailants with big guns and muscular physiques fleeing the scene of the carnage in a black SUV, and the failure of law enforcement officials to secure and restrict access to the home of the suspects if it was indeed a crime scene. The home of the couple, Saeed Farouk and Tashfin Malik, was turned over to the landlord who allowed hordes of news organizations to walk through the residence. The San Bernardino tragedy has allowed corporate media to do a reset of the presidential media narrative, and this new narrative says that all Americans care about is ISIS and terrorism, not other issues such as unemployment, underemployment, climate change, uh, our invasions of other countries, student debt, food safety, and all of that. Zed Jelani of The Intercept discussed these same issues on Democracy Now! I think one of the most remarkable things about this debate was also what was not said. You know, 45,000 people in this country are dying every year because they can't get health care. We have about a quarter of our children, you know, between a third and a quarter of our children in poverty, you know, depending on what part of the country you're looking at. We have deindustrialization throughout the country. I mean, I went to graduate school in Syracuse, New York. There's homes there that look like they're bombed out, but ISIS didn't do that, right? You know, NAFTA did that, deindustrialization did that. And yet all of these questions are being left out of the debate altogether so we can talk about this really fringe organization in the Middle East that poses almost no threat to the United States. They do pose some threat, but we have more than enough capability to handle them. And instead they're talking about building a bigger army, building a bigger military. We actually had a great piece up at The Intercept where we found audio from various defense executives where they're actually saying this war is great for their bottom line. Another Middle East issue is being overshadowed by the obsession with ISIS, Israel's continuing occupation of Gaza, which remains in ruins after last year's invasion. And this was the topic, one of the topics Monday night at St. Columba Church in Northwest D.C. Palestinian activist Raja Natur told those gathered of her effort to support the needs of women there. Women in Susia and the Jordan Valley have been access to education, having access to health services, and having access to a roof on their head, having access to walking land in order to put bread on the table. When it comes to the international law, international community, you as you as citizens, part of the international community, have a huge, huge responsibility. 
Sponsors of the program, Coalition of Women for Peace, is a feminist Israeli organization founded as a coalition of Palestinian and Jewish women within the borders of 1948 who struggled together to end the occupation through public campaigns and outreach programs, integrating a feminist and anti-militaristic discourse. Thanks to our intern, Brianna Rawlison, for her coverage of that event. The San Bernardino shootings also saw a spike in gun sales as activists marked the third anniversary of the mass shooting at an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, that killed 26 people, mostly young children. On Monday, organizations including Moms Demand Action in Every Town USA held rallies around the country demanding federal action on gun control. Last night here in D.C., another school shooting, last year's massacre of 144 children in Peshawar, Pakistan, was remembered at a candlelight vigil at DuPont Circle. Chantel James has more. One year ago today, a multinational group of militants opened fire in the Army Public School in the city of Peshawar, Pakistan. The incident rocked the nation of Pakistan, and its reverberations were felt nationwide. Tonight, a group of about 20 activists and mourners gathered, carrying candles and posters on which had been written the names of the victims. Advopak is a small group of, well, we hope not so small anymore, but a group of young professionals and um, students in D.C. who have come together since the Peshawar attack exactly a year ago to try and commemorate the incident, but also bring attention to other attacks that have happened since in Pakistan issues of discrimination of minorities, assassinations of human rights actors like Sabine Mahmood in May last year, um, horrific attacks on Hazara Shias, on Ismailis, on Ahmadis, on Christians, on Hindus, uh, and on ordinary Muslims as well. So people who speak up for freedom and democracy in Pakistan have been brutally murdered by extremists, extremists and radical groups who claim to speak on behalf of a religion that none of us, uh, none of us think they do. Um, so thanks, a lot of thanks to Advapak, thank you to Zainab and her team for bringing us here. Um, I wonder if you could join me um, in observing a moment of silence for the children, for their families, for the school teachers, for their parents and siblings who must be suffering atrocious, sort of terrible sort of uh, trauma right now. Uh, Keep them in your hearts, keep them in your prayers, but then I think it's time we do some soul-searching about what happens next, um, how we go forward as a nation, uh, as nationals in other parts of the world, how we support our country, and how we, as non-Pakistanis, be good allies and be good supporters for those who need our help uh, in Pakistan. That was activist Aram Haider speaking last night at DuPont Circle at a vigil for victims of the Peshawar attacks one year ago. And those are our headlines for today. When we come back, side-eye on election 2016 and culture and media. Stay with us. Now it's time for our weekly politics segment, Side Eye on 2016. As always, we have our two expert media and political analysts here, Jamila Bay and Amy Alexander, 
providing their unvarnished analysis of election 2016. Let's jump in, Amy. You're up first this week. What had you rolling? Heavy side eye this week. Good morning. Well, actually, you know, it was it was all the, all about the GOP debate. Uh, but I actually, I, you know, that was a big side eye moment. Clearly, <laughs> a long side eye moment. But I actually, you know, I, 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 you know, before we get to the dazzling Vegas show uh, that they put on on Tuesday night, I, you know, I actually would want to f- pay some props to uh, the Demo- Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. You know, she gave an address in Minnesota earlier on Tuesday, very strategically smart because of its content was focused on sort of broad uh, security issues involved with terrorism. And uh, she she did it. They timed it preemptively to come a few hours in front of the GOP debate. So that was pretty smart on her part. Let's take a listen to uh, some of the uh, candidates' long conversation in Minnesota. Here in Minnesota, authorities have charged 10 men with conspiring to provide material support to ISIS. But in the Twin Cities, you have also seen firsthand how communities come together to resist radicalization. Local imams condemning terrorist violence. So, you know, what struck me about uh, Clinton's talk is that a couple things. A, her campaign, they very smartly chose to have this address in, in Minnesota. You know, I, I used to live in St. Paul for a couple of years uh, in the mid-aughts. And um, the thing about Minnesota, it's it's a very sort of Lutheran, Methodist, progressive sensibility. It can be a little predictable, though. You know, don't forget that, that the Minnesota has elected the lethally earnest Republican governor, Tim T. Paul Pawlenty, and also in the early aughts, the delightfully unpredictable Jesse Ventura. Never forget his term as governor there. But by and large, it is a relatively progressive location. It was a safe audience. The audience was handpicked. So that, I thought the location was interesting as well as the timing. She also, by the way, the content of her talk was very important. You know, she, and she was delivered it. You know, you know, if you ever watch Mrs. Clinton's speeches, they're like these really well organized. It's like a bullet point, PowerPoint precision, right? Always very deeply organized and detailed. But she laid out a four point plan for dealing with ISIL. And she also made a very sort of pungent comment about America's domestic terrorism problem and our gun violence problem, which, you know, for African-Americans is this is somewhat as, as important, if not more of a concern right now than ISIL. When you have white extremists running into Planned Parenthood clinics and black churches in South Carolina, you know, I suspect that for sort of your average walking around everyday black person, we're a little bit more concerned about you know, and there are there have been studies and research showing that white racist terror for black people is is you know probably more of a really a reality than anything else. So I thought that was a sort of a bright spot in the week of the presidential uh, campaigning, and especially Mrs. Clinton's touched on racial violence in America, whereas in Vegas Tuesday night that was not so much on the agenda, was it, Jamila? 
Not at all. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, happy end of year to everyone. Um, in this holiday time of year, I'm, I'm actually not going to side eye. Okay. I'm going to remind us that as the world celebrates refugees seeking shelter while in fear for the life of their baby boy, um, I just want to say to all of the GOP candidates, <laughs> a rump-a-pum-pum. <laughs> Seriously, a rumpa xenophobia pum. <laughs> you know, this debate this week was filled with foolish talk that any 10th grader who stayed awake through more than a third of her civics classes could have easily refuted. But but I'm going to Christmas things up a bit with my top three GOP gifts of fear mongering. A frightful lump of coal I send to New Jersey bridge expert and Governor Chris Christie. I'm going to just let him speak for himself. Now, a young Latina questioner asked, if the Bible clearly states that we need to embrace those in need and not fear, how can we justify not accepting refugees? Oh, Governor. The first job of the President of the United States is to protect your safety and your security and the security and safety of your family. And this debate stops with me in the discussions with the FBI director. The FBI director who says, we don't know who these people be. We can't let them in. <laughs> so um, not to be outdone by he who wants to leave orphaned refugees younger than five out in the cold. Trump got a pair. Trump got a pair of shining lumps of fear monger fuel coal from me by saying that he'd be firm with the families of terrorists. A questioner brought up that killing relatives of ISIS would violate the Geneva Convention and make the U.S. identical to ISIS, who also kill innocents, but Trump was ready. He explained that the families and friends, quote, knew about San Bernardino. The Saudi relatives and girlfriends wanted to watch their terrorist boyfriends on television. And yeah, and, and back in 9-11. Um, so the families know, they, they know, they suspect, they, they just want to see the glory. They don't want to report. Um, Trump went on that his firmness would make terrorists think twice about subjecting their own innocent family members to his firmness uh, something like that um yeah so rather than a partridge in a pear tree or a career comeback of david cassidy i hope i offer the gift that i hope nobody else is actually giving here is a bit of the most fear-mongerous stocking full of reindeer lumps that pass for rhetoric at the gop debate america has been betrayed we've been betrayed by the leadership that barack obama and hillary clinton have provided to this country over the last number of years. Think about just what's happened today. The second largest school district in America, in Los Angeles, closed based on a threat. Think about the effect that that's going to have on those children when they go back to school tomorrow, wondering, filled with anxiety about whether they're really going to be safe. Think about the mothers who will take those children tomorrow morning to the bus stop wondering whether their children will arrive back on that bus safe and sound. Think about the fathers of Los Angeles, who tomorrow will head off to work and wonder about the safety of their wives and their children. Yeah, so, uh, Governor Christie, let's fearmonger over Middle Eastern people when there was a, when there was the same hoax that was easily dismissed by New York City, uh, if you might recall, uh, in this note threatening violence against school children. 
Allah was spelled in lowercase more than three times, which a real, uh, an actual person who believes in Islam would never do. So New York City dismissed it as a hoax. Their kids went to school. L.A. had everybody stay home. So, you know, in a time where police brutality and anti-planned parenthood terrorists and white supremacists with easy access to guns are actually killing more Americans than ISIS could ever hope for, um, I wish one and all peace on earth goodwill to all, and a very merry happy until the new year. Thank you so much, Esther. Oh, and thank you, Jamila, and thank you, Amy. So, yes, in the 1-6, we will get back on election 2016. And I I want us to catch up more with Bernie Sanders, you know, who gained the most Twitter followers during the Republican debate and was trying to reach 2 million individual donors on yesterday. I have to actually check to see if he made it. And he made some Internet buzz this week with his interview with an endorsement by Atlanta rapper and entrepreneur Killer Mike. I don't know if you, you know about that. Right. <laughs> so and um, the other election news that is sort of also a culture and media moment is that the billionaire Shelton Adelson, who owns the resort where the Republican debate was held, and he's actually owned some Republican candidates as well in the past. He just purchased the Las Vegas Review Journal in that state, the largest newspaper in Nevada, and where there will actually be an early primary. So we're also looking at that, his attempts to once again... Watch the editorial page. Yes, yes. And the, just the whole thing, right? Okay, so, yes, looking forward to the 1-6, and On the Ground will actually be joining with Voices with Vision crew on this station to do a year-end special on December 30th from 4 to 7 p.m., so f- be sure to tune in. We'll have some special treats for you, kind of looking back at 2015, looking forward to next year. All right, so we'll be coming back after this break with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink and official troublemaker super activist. Stay with us. our DMV diva Navasha Dea with Fanon Hill with their latest track Baltimore Stand Strong 
Well, our last show of the year also coincides with the third week of the month when we do our special segment, The F Word, that explores fascism and pre-fascism. As our listeners know, our touchstone is the statement by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson, who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. He said that fascism is the last stage of capitalism in the heart of the U.S. Imperial Center, where the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. And those ideas also coincide with so many of the major social justice issues we've covered this year. The TPP, or Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a global corporate grab. The world ending, as we know it, climate change fiasco. Um, and it's like a runaway train driven by the fossil fuel industries. Uh, then we have our br- black and brown lives snatched from us, really, by an increasingly militarized police force and the private prison industry, and the list goes on. The seemingly endless war cheered on by the military-industrial complex, people, corporations like Lockheed Martin, North Grumman, (laughs) and as the presidential race races for it, with, of course, corporate control over our elections and corporate spending on the elections, there's the specter of Donald Trump and other Republican candidates laying bare or revving up the fascist elements that have always existed not only in their party, but in American society in general. So as we close this year and look forward to the next, our guest today to help us unpack and examine all these complex issues is Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. And listeners to this show, she's not a stranger to listeners to this show because very often during the year, we've played snippets of her talk at ac- actions, being dragged out of the Senate, just, uh, you know, out front on all these issues that I've just talked about. Medea is co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She has been an advocate for social justice for more than 40 years, described as one of America's most committed and most effective fighters for human rights by New York Newsday, and one of the high-profile leaders of the peace movement by the Los Angeles Times. She was one of 1,000 exemplary women from 140 countries nominated to receive the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the millions of women who do the essential work of peace worldwide. She's the author of eight books, including Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control, and her articles appear regularly in outlets such as the Huffington Post, Common Dreams, Alternet, Other Words, and Telesaur. Welcome to On the Ground, Medea. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, Let's jump right in. I just listed some of the more glaring examples of what is starting to resemble what George Jackson described. Right now, the relationship between the state and corporation is not totally indiscernible, but it seems very, very cozy. You know, what do you think about the changes in our society or developments in our society in terms of an analysis of fascism or pre-fascism? Well, I think there's uh, one way we can look at it is just to look at the issue of money and elections. You were just going through uh, in the earlier segment of the show some of the issues that are coming up in this electoral cycle, but one big issue is this issue of money in politics. And whether it's corporations or individuals, like the Koch brothers or like Sheldon Adelson, um, we can see how money in politics has really made it very difficult to hold our heads up around the world and say we live in a democracy. I travel a lot, and as I travel around our country, say we don't want the system that you have in the United States, and they're worried about their own systems becoming more like ours. 
where uh, elected officials are spending more of their time dialing for dollars or meeting with um, uh, corporate leaders than they are meeting in their communities. So that's just one example of how uh, big money politics has taken over our system. When you look at the the current presidential race as as it's proceeding, a lot of people are, of course, you know, calling um, the candidacy or the campaign of Donald Trump or calling Donald Trump a fascist. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you what your reaction is to that. I mean, it, they seem to be responding more so to his rhetoric around immigrants, refugees, now Muslims, and they're talking about kind of of civil rights violations, human rights violations, as opposed to the economics of it. When I heard him at this last debate, I was just horrified. I mean, you can call it fascism, racism, xenophobia, hate, uh, whatever you want, but it is mean-spirited, ugly. Uh, I mean, the whole tenor of that debate, when each one sort of upped each other on, uh, would you carpet bomb people? Would you uh, destroy the homes of their relatives? Uh, would you use waterboarding? You're damn right I would. I mean, uh, Donald Trump has taken this race to uh, the lowest level that I can remember uh, in terms of how to treat other human beings. And I think it's very dangerous, very scary, and it does feed into this issue of a fascist state where it's not only the, the corporate control, but it's uh, how you look at and treat other people, the kind of divisions we cause in our society, the us and them. And uh, certainly Donald Trump is the leader in this race in terms of dividing society uh, and turning us into a society where people are, are, are turning on each other. You know, um, what we're going to do, we're going to go to uh, our break at the bottom of the hour um, and try to reconnect with you. You sound really fuzzy to me, and I want our listeners to really hear you very clearly. And I also want to invite them to call in and to join our discussion. So they can call 202-588-0893 to speak with us. That's 202-588-0893. And we're going to try to reconnect with you and, and get a better line. Okay? So everybody stay with us.
And welcome back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, for our special segment each month, The F Word. And Medea, we were talking about Donald Trump, and I, I wanted to ask you about the coverage and how what you think about how some of the corporate media is describing as fascism in relationship to Trump. How the corporate media is describing him? Yeah, how they're describing fascism. They, they seem to be throwing that word around a lot right now. And, and, and they're not necessarily looking at the economics of it. They're just really talking about maybe some of his rhetoric around you know, refugees and kind of like more of the human rights violation aspects of it, but not really the economics of it. Well, that's right. And I think when people do use the word, they tend to use it more uh, in that uh, more social context than the economic context. And I don't think the media has done a very good job at all at looking at the economics behind Donald Trump. I mean, there have been some exposés about the times that he went bankrupt, but um, that's about it. For example, I'm working right now after around, uh, Saudi Arabia and looking at the U.S. ties to Saudi Arabia. And lo and behold, you find Donald Trump has a lot of investments um, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And the Saudis have a lot of investments in his uh, businesses. I think it would be great if the media did some more exposés on um, the, the ties that uh, Donald Trump has uh, to states that are um, uh, involved with spreading uh, the extremist ideologies that Donald Trump is supposedly going to... Uh, uh, going to uh, uh, smash if he becomes president. So, yes, I think there's a lot more exposés that could be done about Donald Trump's investments and who invests in his businesses. Right. We actually have a couple of callers uh, who've, who've joined us, and um, we'll, we'll just take those calls now. Caller, just say your first name and where you're calling from. Arlington, Tespa, good morning. Hi, Tespa. Look. There are two groups that are helping, uh, three groups that are helping the terrorists. One, the American, British, and French intelligence agencies are studying the problem of terrorism. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, and all of them. And these intelligence agencies are not recommending what Donald Trump is suggesting. Look, who are helping the terrorists are the dictators in the third world, including the Ethiopian dictators. Okay. Thank you, Tesfa. Do we have another caller? Uh, just say your first name and where you're calling from. Yes, my first name is Paul, and I'm calling from Maryland. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my concern is this. I, I find it really kind of frustrating when I keep hearing people say they're not political because when you allow a society to believe it's okay to feel themselves as not being political, that's the society ripe for allowing fascism to come about. Mm. Um, I think through a tremendous amount of ignorance that is um, happening in our society today, the very people who are most adversely affected by our economic political system are the very people 
who see themselves aligned with a Donald Trump or any of the other Democrat and Republican candidates that are out there today. And it's very dangerous. Uh, I find that um, when you look at what they're proposing, yesterday uh, C-SPAN had the hearings from the House Committee, and they were interviewing the new representative from the State Department dealing with Pakistan and Afghanistan. And some of the information that they were bringing out was mind-blowing. But I'm sure most people didn't listen to it. For example, Saudi Arabia supports about 600 schools in Pakistan that is pushing the ideology uh, similar to that of ISIS. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Thank you, Paul. Now, uh, Medea, you know, it's interesting that he mentioned Saudi Arabia and that hearing because you said you're actually studying some issues around Saudi Arabia right now. Well, I'm working on a book on Saudi Arabia, and we're holding a summit on Saudi Arabia and U.S.-Saudi ties on March 5th and 6th at the UDC Law School, uh, open to everyone. And we think it's a really important time that we educate ourselves more about the role of Saudi Arabia. Um, and especially if you're going to talk about issues like corporate control, we've got to look at this uh, Petro Kingdom and where it's putting its scholars, its relationship to the spread of extremism, and why does the United States have such a cozy relationship with this country that beheads people uh, because of blogs or tweets that they put out. So it really is, um, it, it's pretty amazing that we've, uh, even in the left, I would say, allowed ourselves to not question that alliance or not do anything to try to uh, break that alliance. So I'm very excited about this new campaign we have. We're looking at where the Saudis are putting money, for example, all over Washington, D.C., think tanks. You scratch beneath the surface, you'll find Saudi money. Mm. Lo and behold, they don't criticize Saudi Arabia. American University, Georgetown University, these, these universities, they get Saudi money. And uh, it's been hard for us to even get into the classes to talk about Saudi Arabia. So it's very interesting when you look at the Saudi lobby and how they have managed to give money to the Carter Center, good old Jimmy Carter, his program for empowering women and girls, and he takes money from Saudi Arabia, uh, or even um, the Clinton Foundation gets millions of dollars from the Saudis. Hmm. It's a very uh, intricate web that they have woven uh, with their petrodollars, and we've got to expose it and try to do something about it. You know, the... Even looking at the current conflict in Syria, I mean, it's just such a morass. But the fact that Saudi Arabia is actually supporting many of these same uh, organizations that we're fighting and that they have done so much destruction and killing in Yemen. And that is not being really discussed or, or talked about. You know, we're talking about war crimes and it, it's so convoluted and so complex, but it's not too complex for us to try and sort it out and hold our so-called allies responsible. I was kind of amused, but, you know, it's also like actually really terrible when you think about it, when when the cartoon came out. You know, with the uh, ISIS beheading someone next to someone from Saudi Arabia, uh, beheading someone and just kind of making the point about the hypocrisy around our, our stance toward ISIS versus Saudi Arabia. Right. And let's 
bring in the corporate context of all of this, which is the weapons industries. The Saudi government has done the largest weapons sales with the U.S. in the history of humankind, $60 billion worth of weapons, most of it happening under Obama's administration. And it's the companies like Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Uh, these are the ones that are getting wealthy from human rights abuses and the war crimes. You mentioned Yemen. I think it's so sad that our media is not covering what's going on in Yemen, the thousands of innocent people that are being killed by U.S. weapons, right. including cluster munitions, which are supposed to be banned, uh, but being sold by companies like Textron here in the United States. There's so much to expose about how these weapons manufacturers are keeping us in a constant state of war or selling their weapons to human rights abusers like the Sisi regime in Egypt or um, the, the Saudi uh, monarchy. And then we wonder why there are people who hate us. Well, you know, if I were a Muslim living on the uh, receiving end of U.S. cluster munitions, uh, I wouldn't think too kindly about the United States. Right. Oh, we have another caller. Uh, just say your first name and where you're calling from. My name is Bill I'm calling, I'm calling from Washington, D.C. Go ahead, you're on the air. Thank you, Esther. I just have a question for you guys. Uh, I've been here in America for 34 years now, and uh, Ronald Reagan was the president. And mind you, uh, Ronald Reagan, two terms, George Washington, I mean, uh, George Bush, the old, he had one term, uh, Clinton, two terms, Bush, two terms, Obama, two terms. Give me, if all these presidents had slogan or had a propaganda of saying we bring the peace, we bring health free, we bring good education, we bring all this kind of, I mean, change to the universe. The only thing was leftist, terrorist, we would kill them, we will eliminate them. Why I was surprised by Donald Trump, he is doing the same as the fascism of all these presidents were doing. Nothing is different between Obama and him, they are human killers. The democracy of America, I'm telling you, you can look at it from Jefferson, Washington, all of this. It begins from killing, it ends here, still killing. And I don't, it don't surprise me. The fascism is always, we accepted okay. it, we're doing, and we're going with it. Okay, thank you. So, you know, the, the caller actually raised some, some important points, Medea, in terms of just kind of the history of like basically fascism, pre-fascism in this country, the role of corporations, the the power of corporations. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that of the myriad of issues that I kind of listed at the top of the section is actually kind of depressing. <laughs> you know, we're talking about right now the TPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, you know, opponents, you know, consider to be a, a global uh, a go corporate global grab, you know, climate change, um, impunity for police uh, who are murdering us, you know, uh, increasingly mur um, increasingly militarized police, you know, armed by the same weapons manufacturers, you know, the private prison industry, the military industrial complex, and as we mentioned, the corporate control over our elections, you know, I'm wondering if, from your vantage point, you know, how you look at these, tackling all these issues in the work that you do. You know, how do you, how do we deal with, <laughs> you know, because I know Code Pink is, 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 
primarily around anti-war, but you're also, you know, grabbing hold of all these things and, and putting them together so that people can understand them. So how do you, you know, how do you, you know, deal with all of these things in, in your work? Well, we make connections to all of these issues. You said, for example, yesterday I joined with uh, dozens of other organizations when we turned in over a million signatures at the White House asking Obama to use an executive order to force federal contractors to um, disclose what their political spending is. Uh, and we were on the streets of Paris during the climate talks. Um, we believe that we have to see the intersections, and the intersections get down to the money issues. Um, but uh, I have a positive outlook on things because I do look not only historically at how we've made such amazing changes in the history of our own country, but also looking overseas. I recently got to see Michael Moore's new film. I don't oh, know if you yeah. had a chance to see it. Have you seen it? After? I did. I did see it. I did see it. Yeah. I mean, I loved it, and I loved the part that really shows how people getting out on the streets, whether it's the uh, the youth getting out on the streets to demand that college education stay free, uh, or people, uh, the unions, the strong unions that are getting things like six weeks vacation. Um, I, I think it's important to recognize that gains are constantly being made and taken away depending on how strong the grassroots is. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, our job is to expose what's happening at the top, expose the corporate ties to the politicians, but our job is really to build up a strong counterweight to that, and you know that's that's uh, it's tough during election times to do that because we're so focused on the candidates. And I know a lot of my friends have dropped their work in the grassroots community to go join Bernie Sanders' campaign, you know, which is great. But um, I think it's so important that we have movements that are separate from political parties that don't get excited about who the Democratic candidate is going to be because. It's a Democratic machine in the end that's going to win, or the Republican machine. And we need people power separate from the two corporate parties. So that that movie, so we're not being cryptic. I hate when like people are talking on the radio and they, they don't say what they're talking about. But it's called "Where Should We Invade Next," and uh, I think it's it's open in some markets. I'm not sure about DC yet, but um, it it is coming out and it's uh, it's it's been shortlisted for a nomination, I believe, um, for an Oscar Oscar shortlisted for a nomination, and also. Um, uh, oh, there's something that you were saying that I wanted to talk about. We have a couple more callers, so let's go to the callers. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Hi, this is Brigitte. I just want to thank you, Esther and Medea, um, for the amazing analysis and the work that you're doing to engage us in a really, really um, useful conversation about the connection among these issues. And um, and so you just spoke to, you know, these intersections, which I think is really important. I think about the drone warfare that Medea has written about and, um, you know, kind of this whole warmongering and then the militarization of police and the mass incarceration here and those connections. But I wanted to ask you, you know, your thoughts about kind of not just a counterweight to these, um, you know, terrible wrongs, but, like, what are you thinking about the kind of society we want to create. And I, I know there's some um, interest and support that you've both expressed for things like the Black Worker Center that's being developed um, here in D.C. and in other places. And I just wanted your thoughts about sort of what's the vision that we're building towards. Oh, okay, thank you, Bridget. 
as always, for your input and, and thoughts. Uh, Medea, do you want to uh, take that first? Yeah, I think it's um, so important to put out a positive vision of where we want to go, especially if we want to get young people to get on board. We have to have something we're working towards. And in my mind, it's an economy that's based on peace and sustainability. Uh, it's divesting ourselves from the uh, fossil fuel industries, the war machines, and it's putting our resources into everything from public banks, uh, I love the, the campaign that's going on right now, trying to get post offices to also be uh, banking centers and the other campaigns to get public banks uh, so that we know, uh, have control over where our money is invested, invested back in our communities. Um, we certainly should be supporting uh, fair wages and the $15 an hour campaigns are, are great, but the whole context has to be that workers should earn enough to live not just barely scrape by lives, but good lives. Um, and uh, I also think that the whole concept of fair trade over free trade, and that would that says don't get involved in these uh, trade deals like the TPP, which is um, along the lines of the one that we had uh, in 1990, going back to the, the, the agreement w between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, and NAFTA, um, agreements that bring us down to the lowest common denominator and uh, the worst environmental um, concerns. And instead, we want trade agreements to bring us to the highest common denominator. Uh, and I think there's also some great movements around organic agriculture, um, the movements that bring farmers and consumers together. A lot of young people I know are going back to the land and doing great work there. Uh, so there's, uh, and the co-op movement. Um, the co-op movement is growing in this country, uh, the black worker centers, uh, not only here but around the country. There are new ones springing up. Uh, co-ops, I think, are uh, the way to go in the future, and I see it happening in places like Cuba where they've had a state-run economy that hasn't worked, and now they're moving towards worker co-ops. Uh, and the same kind of thing in, in countries where it's been big corporate money and people are breaking up those corporations and putting things into workers' hands. So those are some of the positive things that I see. Okay. Just for the sake of getting uh, two more callers, and I, I'll save my comments for my closing, but uh, let's go to the next call. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. I have 30 seconds. <laughs> Hi, this is Heather. I'm in Laurel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I guess I've got, you guys have my mind going a mile a minute, so I'm going to try to sum this up for you. Please, so, 30 um, seconds. <laughs> Okay, so really and truly you're talking about Donald Trump and Saudi money, and I know, like, a lot of interesting things, and what I ultimately find is that I'm surrounded by a lot of people who apparently are just as angry and full of hate, and so, like, we're not really talking about the fact that there's about a million supporters of Donald Trump, there's people cheering for him in rallies, and then I have to go stand in line with these people and vote, I live with them. How do I, like, do you have any advice for engaging the general public? And Because right now I'm just angry and it's not effective. You know, uh, there is a group that's actually uh, meeting and they're they're talking about really what they're really looking at is ways to talk to white people about racism. And uh, if you go to the Washington Peace Center website to their activist alerts page, the Washington Peace Center activist alerts page is where I actually find a lot of what's going on here locally in the DMV. Uh, they will have uh, listings for a, a group that is meeting. And I think one of our 
our big supporters here, Star, is um, part of that organizing. And I would I would direct you there to uh, be in a space where people are actually talking about how do you talk to other white people about racism, xenophobia, and all those types of issues. Um, 30 seconds. I have one more caller. 30 seconds. I'm going to get you in. I just say your first name. Where are you calling from? Thank you. Go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, great. Hey, thanks a lot. Hey, uh, this is a great. That last comment about where to go with the Washington Peace Center, uh, that's a, a great uh, end to your show, but you've done an excellent job, you know, from, uh, uh, from I've just turned 60, and looking back, you, you, Martin Luther King would be on your program now talking about how to proceed and how to uh, uh, uncover the, uh, the uh, racist attitudes we're seeing throughout our uh, uh, Supreme Court and the hoods coming off and where these uh, KKK people who are really actually fascists uh, have proceeded to infiltrate into our American government. Okay. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, you know, uh, Medea, thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any final thoughts, like, real quick? <laughs> Real quick, I think we got to talk about uh, how nice it is to live in a society where people love each other and respect each other and just go towards the positive. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Okay, and thank you for joining us. I've been speaking with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, and that will do it for us for this year on Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. But On the Ground will be joining with other voices, the Voices with Vision crew and other programmers to do a year-end special, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, December 30th from 4 to 7 p.m. Uh, be sure to tune in then. We have some special treats for you, and more information will be coming soon about that special. Also, the deadline for five Filing of our human rights petition to the United Nations has been extended. I'm going to put on our website, contact onthegroundshow.org, information about that. Um, we're working with uh, individuals, families, organizations who would like to file petitions about human rights violations to the UN, particularly those of us of African descent. I'm Esther Averam, and I want to thank Brianna Rawlinson and Chantel James, our interns, Amy Alexander, Jamila Bay, DJ Wahid in the house with me today, and Mike Nacella on the board. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can now listen to all of our past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. Again, you can email us at contact at onthegroundshow.org. Now stay tuned for the news with Oscar Bahamut, followed by Krista Property on the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues. Raise your voice out there. Peace. Hey,